Well, we've seen something of the nature of God and his covenants, of God's covenantal nature, really. We've seen that in the covenant with creation and then with Noah and all the creatures and all the earth and his promise not to flood the earth again, despite the ongoing evil of the human heart. And we saw that uh, could be considered as a renewing of the covenant and creational mandate made at creation, albeit with some added extras in both provision, promise and protection. And one thing I've tried to encourage us in is to see that covenant is all about relationship. It's not contractual. It's not just a framework for scripture. It's how God relates to us. Relationship and promise. Uh, It's through that that God relates to us. A relationship which God himself initiates. Doesn't wait for us to come halfway. God initiates, God establishes and he sustains. And as I said earlier, if not for God's covenant faithfulness, then what confidence could we have as we stand before the holy living God? My confidence, don't know about you, but mine's not upon my faithfulness, not upon my performance or my ability to uphold any covenant obligation on my side of things. It's all upon God and his faithfulness. So we've seen God's covenant with creation and then with Noah and this morning we come to his covenant with Abraham and with all his descendants who eventually become the nation of Israel and then through faith in Christ we see Father Abraham has many sons and daughters, don't we? Now I wonder, you already know the answer because we're going through the covenants chronologically, but if we weren't, and I just asked you the question, what covenant do you think Israel lived under? I reckon most of us would probably say the law. We'd probably say we lived under the covenant with Moses. Israel lived under that covenant. Which is not wrong, but it's not the best answer. Israel primarily lived in and under God's covenant with Abraham. That was established 430 years before the law. And it's an everlasting covenant. And so what we're going to look at next week, the covenant at Sinai with Moses and the law, actually comes in and under this umbrella covenant with Abraham. Really important to see that as you look through scripture, as you see how Israel, how God deals with Israel and Israel responds to God's covenant with the law. All of that takes place under this covenant with Abraham. When Israel broke the law, when they broke God's covenant, what was it that kept God from saying, enough is enough, I've had enough with you, I'm going to go find another nation? It was Abraham. It was God's promise to Abraham. In Exodus 2, it was when God, we're told, remembered, (laughs) there's that covenant word, it was when God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that God called Moses through the burning bush. So even God calling Moses is because of this covenant he has with Abraham to deliver his people from Egypt. Later on in Exodus, can you remember the golden calf incident? How awful that was. God was consumed with wrath, anger. He said, I have had enough. I'm going to wipe them out. Moses, I'm going to start again with you. You're going to be... That's actually what he's offered Moses. You can be the father of nations from this point on. Do you know what Moses said? 
He implores the Lord, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel. This is Moses saying that. Remember what you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I've promised and they will inherit it. And because of Moses' prayer and intercession, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of. We should be grateful, extremely grateful that Moses was a meek man, shouldn't we? Here's an opportunity to stand up and rise up to stardom. He could be the father of nations. No, he's a meek man, we're told, isn't he? A man not filled with selfish ambition, but one who hears God's word and submits to it. Matthew Henry uh, suggests in his definition of meekness, uh, Moses is a man with self-control of strength that makes us lambs in our own causes, but lions for the cause of Christ. Meekness a self-control of strength that makes us lambs in our own causes. Moses wasn't going to go and try to take the, take the glory, but a lion for the cause of Christ. And just in that little passage, or little passage, in that event there, Moses also teaches us something about prayer, I think. Just a little tangent. As well as his humble deflection of any greatness <laughs> that could come his way, He teaches us that the go-to for us, the basis of any petition or prayer of ours to the Lord should actually be the very promises of God. Moses implores the Lord not on behalf of anything or anyone or on the basis of, look, I haven't been that bad or, you know, don't choose me. No, No, he says, you've promised something. Don't go back on your promise, God. Remember your promise to Abraham. There's many more examples of that we could look at, but that's not our focus this morning. But it's just a helpful thing for us in our own prayers. What has God promised us? Because when we pray on that basis, we know we're actually appealing to God's character, his nature and his own word, which lasts forever. And so what I guess, just before I even look at these passages in Genesis, what I want us to see is that God's promise, his covenant promise to Abraham, it's that his promise to Abraham and all his descendants which keep his people, Israel and the church, throughout all salvation history. Whilst it's not explicit in the text, we could actually say that the promise God made in Genesis 3, verse 15, the one to come who will be bruised by the serpent but will crush the serpent's head, that promise is now being defined as coming through to humanity through Abraham. Okay? Well, since Genesis 3 to here, every birth of a child, especially the firstborn son, has been, is this the one, is this the one? Noah's going to give us rest from the curse. But no, now it's Abram. And God has actually said it's going to happen through Abraham. It's not Abram himself. So let's look. um, Salvation history is locked in place for Israel in the loins of Abraham primarily in the promise of God to Abraham, to his covenant, but it's in and through Abraham. And as I said, this promise to Abraham now sits, whichever way you like, or maybe both, as a foundation for the rest of Israel and salvation history or as an umbrella over it all. 
maybe it's both. Let's have a look at Genesis 12. We had it read earlier. 12, 1 to 3. We hear Abraham is told to go, to leave his homeland, his country, his family, his father's house, and he's to go to a land that the Lord would show him. Uh, we hear that that's going to be Canaan, and he walks through there and builds an altar. In thanksgiving to the Lord, trusting God, he goes. And with the command to go comes this great covenant promise. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham is going to receive a great name from God. He's going to become a great nation and he'd be, a, he'd be blessed by God with the purpose so that he would be a blessing to others. And then in verse 3, God would side with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. God would advocate for Abraham, blessing those who bless him and cursing those who dishonour him. Uh, Dumbrell suggests that uh, who are those who might bless Abraham? It's those who recognise the source of Abraham's blessing. Who recognise Yahweh, the Lord, as the source of Abraham's blessing, which also implies those who dishonour him are those who reject Yahweh as the source of blessing. Think about where we are today in our self-made, self-glorifying, self-determined, self-believing age. We're not recognising at all where life and blessing come from, are we? We think it's all from us. Entitled, or if not entitled, then determined we can do it ourselves. And so we're actually rejecting that any life and blessing comes from the Lord. And so miss out on the gift and blessing of salvation. It was no small thing for Abram to do what God told him, was it? Up and go, just like that. Like I said, I've just moved mum from home, 45 years in a family home, to a retirement village. It's no small thing. She had her sons to help her, a couple of trailer loads or four or five trailer loads and a few bits and pieces. There we go. Abram's told to up and leave and go to a whole different country. Uh, God forgives sinners. It's okay. Abraham's told to up and go. He doesn't go with just a couple of bags. He actually takes quite a load of people, actually. Yeah, big tent. Quite a big tent. He actually ends up later on, we're going to find it, he sends an army. <laughs> so he's taken quite a few people. He actually goes off and fights a, a civil war in the Jordan Valley. Um, no small thing, though. He's gone to leave his homeland, his family, all his natural connections, his culture and tradition, and he's to go, and as he goes, he's to depend upon God for all, that which he's just, all of which he's just left. God's the one who's going to provide for him any now family connection, communion, God's going to give him an eternal culture, a city whose designer and builder is God. And he's not going to rely on tradition, but on God's promise and the fulfilment of that for the future. But he's called to do that with God by his side constantly. I will bless those who bless you and dishonour those who curse you. 
a great name, a great nation, a great blessing, so that in you, the end of verse 3, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God sort of hones in on Abram and his family, this one family, out of all the nations of the earth at this time. This is after Babel. He scattered them all. And he hones in on Abram. But straight away, his separating, his choosing of Abraham is with a purpose towards the nations. So that all the families, all the tribes, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so whilst God is interested in the intricacies and details of our lives, yours and mine, he knows the hairs on our head, doesn't he? He knew how many were on Abram's. And yet the scope of his covenant love and mercy reaches to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And as we'll see, it's an everlasting covenant that he's making here. And that scope is not just here in Abraham. It's right up to today, isn't it? Jesus himself commands, what is it, the end of Matthew? Go and make disciples of all the nations. I've picked you, I've picked 12, and now you're going to go and make disciples of all the nations. And right at the end of your Bibles, you get to Revelation 21 and 22, the nations are there walking by the light of the glory of God and the Lamb. And the nations bring their own glory and honour in their kings, and the leaves of the tree of life are there for the healing of the nations. God's not small with his plans, is he? It's for all the earth. Even there at the end of Revelation, we actually see a fulfilment of God's promise here to Abraham. And so after that up and go of Abraham, this is what I'm going to promise you, great name, great blessing, uh, great uh, nation. He goes. And then Genesis 12, 13, 14 go on to tell us about Abraham and Sarai in Egypt where he tries to pass his wife off as his sister and Pharaoh gets wind of that. Abraham and Lot going their separate ways. Abraham later rescuing Lot from being caught up in the middle of this great uh, rivaling going on in the Jordan Valley around Sodom. Defeating kings, Abraham actually goes and sends his own men to rescue Lot. And that brings out an audience with one king of Salem, Melchizedek a key figure who we don't actually hear a lot about, but he's a key figure in scripture, isn't he? And then chapter 15, after these things, as in all that stuff between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, after these things, we read of what God promised Abraham in chapter 12 being ratified in this great covenant ceremony. A ceremony ceremony which God performs with Abraham and yet Abraham's somewhat of a passive party in the ceremony, but definitely very much an active participant in the covenant promise and purpose. After these things, Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I am your shield. It's a military image, isn't it? God himself will be his protector his protection, God will defend Abraham. Isn't that good to know? Your reward will be very great, or some versions, depending on how you read it, I am your great, I will be your great reward. Abraham's future, his inheritance, the reward, his gift from God, is a sure thing. It's sealed in God himself. 
just earlier at the end of chapter 14, what has Abraham done? He's refused any booty or reward from the king of Sodom for defeating the other kings. He said, you can take all you want, all the, all the booty, all the spoils of war. Abraham said, no, no, anything I have comes from God. And in the midst of that, God says, you're right, Abraham, and you don't have to worry, you'll never go without. I am your shield and your reward will be great. He knows he has the gift of God to look forward to. But Abram says, he sort of questions God. He says, yeah, you've promised me all this stuff, but who's it going to go to? I've got no children. Who's going to benefit from all these great promises, this great name, this great nation, all these blessings? It's all going to go to Eliezer, my servant. But with, with God, all things are possible, aren't they? Humanly speaking, it all finishes with Abraham. It's got to sort of get passed on through the, the things that would take place. And, and it was right, if Abraham had no children, then his inheritance would go to, go to his servant. But the Lord says, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him, Abram, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, and if you're able to number them, And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And God continues to bring life out of nothing situations, doesn't he? Hope, where there's hopelessness. Life, filling empty and barren wombs giving hope where there's despair, life where there's death. Which eventually, maybe not immediately, but eventually actually sums up Abraham's faith, doesn't it? It's a resurrection faith, it's a life out of death faith. As he's later prepared to offer Isaac up in sacrifice to God, believing, we're told, God was even able to raise him from the dead, which the writer of Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, he did. Abraham's faith is a resurrection faith. It's an out of nothing God brings something. Faith. And so when we're told in the New Testament, we who share the faith of Abraham, that's what we're talking about. The God who makes something out of nothing. The God who brings hope into a hopeless situation. Against hope, Abraham believed in hope. That's the sort of faith we share with Abraham. The promise of land, a great name, great nation and blessing and now expands to a promise of offspring to many descendants. Whether that's part of the covenant promise or is just the means through which the rest of it comes to be, they're each contingent on the other. There's, what's the use of having a great nation if you've got no descendants or a great land if you've got no one to fill it? Abraham is <coughs> relieved because God's made this promise but he's only relieved because he believes. Good little rhyming thing, isn't it? It sort of struck me. Belief in God's word and promise brings Abraham relief. Because he has to wait for it. It's not like all's right and rain now, all good and right. He actually has to wait a long, long time. And yet Abraham's relieved. His concerns are relieved. 
He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, in, in this passage, it just sort of moves on. There's no great theological statement. Well, there is a great theological statement there, but it doesn't sort of then go in and flesh that out. We just sort of move on in the story. You realise how important that little verse is. <laughs> when you get to the New Testament, you read Romans and Galatians. And, okay, no small thing. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We who share the same faith have been justified made righteous. Our faith is counted to us as righteousness. But Abraham still got a question, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I've still got this little bit of doubt. You've made these promises to me. I'm not seeing anything yet. I want something tangible. How can can I be sure? God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid them, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This really is the cutting of the covenant, isn't it? Quite literally. Back in verse 7, you might have picked up, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, out of the, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land. Sounds a bit like the beginning of the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Remember we said these covenant uh, treaties have a certain um, structure. This is the preamble or prologue. I am the Lord, I'm making this covenant with you. I'm the one who brought you out of the, from Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram interrupts him with his query in verse 8. The Lord's not phased by Abram's query. He's not phased by any doubt at this time and it's all confirmed in the covenant ceremony to take place which God asked Abraham to prepare but not to participate in. At least not in any active way here. As I said, he's very much active as a recipient and in through which the, uh, the promises that God um, make here. <laughs> in one sense he tries to be a bit too active a little later on with Hagar, doesn't he? And sometimes it's good for us to learn, okay, God tells us to prepare to do a certain amount of work, to, to hear him and to be obedient to him, but then to trust him for the fulfilling of what he's promised us and not to take matters into our own hands. God's the one through whom these promises are going to come to fruition. And as we're about to see, all the onus, all the weight of responsibility and all the risk actually lie on God's shoulders. Let me read from verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace." You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, 
the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. This great covenant ceremony just takes a few verses in scripture. Would have taken a bit more than that time for Abraham to get the animals and cut them up. And it takes place while Abram's in a deep sleep, a sleep brought about by God so that God himself, symbolised by the smoking firepot and the flaming torch, later we know with the Exodus, the smoke of the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke through the wilderness. So this is God himself walking through the cut animals, effectively saying, let it be to me this curse or the consequence of unfaithfulness to my covenant, let it be done to me if I break my covenant with you. God alone is bound to his covenant promise here. He's binding himself to it. And it's not like he can just turn around and take it lightly. In Jeremiah 34, a different context, Jeremiah 34 verse 17, God says to his people, Thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbour. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Hmm. Why? The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of my covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. This is God's people making a covenant with God and they've broken it. And so God says, this is what's going to happen to you. Here back in Genesis, God's saying, this is what will happen to me if I break my promise to you, Abram. What's at stake here? Abraham's future, his people, the family, the people of God, the nation of Israel and the church, all of that. But ultimately what's at stake is actually the very existence of God. Let it be to me if I break my word to you here. Now I say that because we see here and we see later in Exodus 32 that I read earlier, um, or spoke of earlier, in Hebrews 6, we're told God made this covenant with Abraham. When he did, he swore by himself. Okay, he's putting himself on the line. When you, I swear by my mother's grave or I swear by this guy, trying to think of something higher to swear by, to sort of bolster up our word. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we're doing it up the hill, don't do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But we swear by something to add some weight to our word, maybe trying to convince people that we really mean what we say. There's no one higher than God. He can only swear by himself. And that's what he does here. You make a promise and you say, look, if I break my promise in a contract, you say, you can have whatever I've put down as equity, as you know, the guarantee. And God can't do that, cause it's, he, but he's saying to him, you can do with me as you wish if I break my word to you. Putting himself on the chopping block, so to speak. One thing that's often missed in this is that It's quite amazing, I think. God waits until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. (laughs) God's promise to Abraham here is to Abraham, but it's actually to his offspring, isn't it? 
which is what the Lord says. Everything's under God's sovereign hand, part of his plan and purpose, all to do with his patience. He doesn't act until just the right time, does he? Christ came, sent his son at just the right time. Seems here the Amorites, when it says they have their uh, iniquities not yet complete, is really waiting for the, the conquest uh, in Canaan, which God's people failed to complete, really. Um, but some would say that the Amorites have not proven themselves, not yet sufficiently wicked to deserve the fate that is already determined for them. But it's also just as amazing that Abraham himself is content. He's faithful and determined not only to trust the Lord here, but to wait in faith, to be patient, even to die in faith. Trusting and knowing that God will fulfil this promise to his offspring. They will be the inheritors of this promise. While he, Abraham, will die in peace. but without seeing the promise of God fulfilled. Now, many today would think that's a bit of a letdown, or more than just a bit. That's a bit of a rough end of the deal, really, isn't it? God's made all this great promise. He's told you to do this and that, and you're not going to see one bit of that come to fruition? Well, he actually sees a fair bit when Isaac's born, doesn't he? But as far as the full outworking, he doesn't see much of it. But if we think we're just getting the rough end of the deal because we have to wait and maybe even die before it happens, It's because we've forgotten that we're told to seek first God's righteousness, aren't we? And his kingdom, not our own. God says in the middle of all of this, in verse 13, can't find it because I'm still back in chapter 12. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. Back in verse verse 7, no, verse 8. Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's not certain. And as God performs this covenant ceremony, putting himself in the firing line, walking between the animals, he says to Abram, Know for certain. You can be sure. Whatever doubts you have, whatever concerns, whatever queries, you can be sure that I will fulfil my word to you. The word's not quite the same here as what he heard back in chapter 12. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They're going to have to serve a nation for 400 years. They're going to be afflicted there. But you can still know for certain that afterward I'm going to bring them out and they shall come out with great possessions. Faith, we're told, um, in Hebrews 11, I know my old NIV study Bible that I went to uni with, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. Sure of what we hope for, certain of what we cannot see. My ESV puts it a different way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's other variations. But there's a certainty in faith, isn't there? How certain are we today when it comes to God's word and God's promises to us? And how patient are we in that certainty, in our faith? I think I've shared this with you before, but um, a couple of years ago at my dad's funeral, when I spoke there, 
my uncle came to me afterwards and said, I need to talk with you. It took a while before we eventually, he was a bit crook and um, retiring from work. But something of what I said and how I said it at Dad's funeral struck him. And he told me how it reminded him of his own mum when she passed away. She died some years earlier, but she died in faith. And he could see and he knew just speaking with her that she died with confidence in what was to come. And that was what struck him at my dad's funeral because of what I said and how I spoke. He said there was a confidence you had that reminded me of what my mum had when she died. And I don't have that confidence, but I want it. He had no certainty because he had no faith. See, faith is not a shot in the dark. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Not because we believe it so much it's going to come to pass, but because God has promised it. And so we know it's going to come to pass. He wasn't ready to let go of all his own trappings and unbelief at that stage. But he wants, he knows there's some way, there is a way that there can be confidence and certainty. And I shared with him the only way is through Christ. The living word. And God is telling Abram here, you can know for certain, not because of anything you do, but because of what I've said and what I have done and what I will do. We too can be that certain, can't we? We can know that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We know that he who is faithful, he who has promised, he who has called you, he will do it. We live in an age, and probably not just this age, but everyone wants proof, everyone wants something tangible, like Thomas. Not just a modern phenomenon, is it? Show me the wounds. Let me put my finger in my hands. No, we would do well to read and listen and heed Abraham's faith here and God's word to Abraham. Know for certain. Abraham trusted God. His faith was counted to him as righteousness and he was content with this, even with affliction, followed by great blessing. It would be more than 400 years and he would see so little of it come to fruition. And yet he's still got a few things to learn, hasn't he? Because he tries to make this certainty come to pass with his wife's maidservant. But what we do learn, as I've already shared, is Abraham's faith was a long-term patient faith, like 430 years and then into eternity even because God says at the end of Hebrews, they're all waiting for something better because they're not going to receive it apart from us who believe now. How long are we willing to wait for God to fulfil his promises? How long does it take before we get itchy feet or the seeds of doubt start to sprout up just because the situation goes bad? Like 400 years in Egypt. You get itchy feet trusting God, thinking you might not come through with what he said. Well, consider these words, know for certain. Know for certain. And the New Testament teaches us that we who share the faith of Abraham, we too can know for certain we are recipients, inheritors of God's promises, including forgiveness, righteousness, 
our adoption, heirs with Abraham. We can be certain that we too will receive the gift of the Spirit, every spiritual blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing. In Genesis 12, I was going to say to you, there's, this blessing is mentioned five times just in three verses. And some scholars look back at Genesis 1 to 11 and actually see that curse is mentioned five times. Whether you just like the mirror image or not, but there's something significant there. But the curse is not how it begins, is it? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. How does Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begin? Folk from up the hill with the Beatitudes, with blessing. How does our life in Christ be blessing? We can be sure... We can be certain that we've been redeemed from sin and evil, deliverance from a kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been taken, like Abraham, out of our homeland where we dwelt in darkness and brought into a promised land of light and love. The gift of the Spirit is ours. We can be certain that everything that is God's, your very great reward, is ours in Christ Jesus. How will I know? Abraham asks. And God says, watch this, listen to this and know for certain. How good is that? And so if you've still got the energy someday and you start to sing Father Abraham's many sons, right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, nod your head, turn around, sit we're actually singing and celebrating all of that which we can know for certain in the promises of God when we say we're a child of Abraham. And as I said earlier, it's only in covenant love, relationship and faithfulness that we could ever know for certain. But in that covenant relationship, we can be sure and certain. Can we see it all now? No. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I need to move along. The other thing that adds to the certainty is when God gives a sign. He does help confirm our faith, doesn't he? Or support, give us confidence. And he gives Abraham a sign. He provides a sign of this covenant just as he did with Noah. We heard about the rainbow last week, him setting the bow in the sky. And here in Genesis 17, just as we finish, I'm not going to go through it all and make some key points uh, for the sake of time. Have a listen just in the opening verses um, of what God's doing here. When Abram, Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you, between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. You can finally just say Abraham and not try to get confused. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I have made you. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after, the, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Who's the actor in all of that? God is. I will, I will, I will. That's how he can be certain. And then he's given the sign of circumcision. As for you, keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you, uh, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It goes on at the end. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. Circumcision is a marker. It's a sign of inclusion in God's covenant people. To reject it is akin to removing oneself from the covenant. There's a cutting off in the act of circumcision, but to reject that would be to actually cut yourself off from God's promises and from his people. It's a sign really that you're rejecting (laughs) the blessing of God that he's given to Abraham. You no longer want to belong. But like any sign, just like a wedding ring, if I take my wedding ring off, it doesn't mean I'm no longer married, does it? No, the, the ring is not our marriage. It's not my one flesh union with Bron, my wife. If I ever lost it and never wore it again, it would not, we would not cease to be married. It's a sign to me and to Bron and to everyone else that I'm a married man, that I belong to another. And so it is with circumcision for Abraham and his descendants for all the male offspring. This was a sign that they belong to God, that they are people of his covenant. To refuse the sign would actually be to refuse God's word and his promise, to no longer want to be under his covenant love, protection, faithfulness and say, I'll do it on my own, thank you very much. Again, worth remembering, the goal of this everlasting covenant that he describes here, it's an everlasting covenant, is with Abraham and all his offspring, but it's with a view to a blessing of a nation. So there's a setting apart here. John asked me uh, last week about holiness and covenant. I haven't mentioned anything about that. It hasn't really come up yet. It'll come up more after this week. But here's God setting apart his people, a chosen holy people, setting them apart, but always with a view to, with a purpose, that's what being holy is, set apart for God's purpose and the purpose is for the nations that they'll all be blessed the end of Galatians just to finish up one of Paul's great treaties on works righteousness where it's included in that works righteousness uh, people were enforcing the practice of circumcision if you're going to become one of God's people and Paul says no 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 Galatians 6, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It did for Abraham. It was a sign, it counted for a lot. It's still just a sign, but it counted. But it's faith that counted most, wasn't it? Or counted fully. The circumcision was the sign. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, Jew and Gentile. And today in the New Testament in Christ, it's not now baptism which counts for anything either, even though it's a sign of the new covenant, a sign, and many consider it in direct parallel to the Old Testament circumcision. But it's not circumcision nor baptism, but a new creation which counts. Combine that with Genesis 5-6, it's faith working through love which counts. The true sign of our belonging to God's people. Baptism is public ceremony, public testimony, public sign. Faith working through love, the evidence, the fruit of the righteousness we have in Christ. But it's all fruit, it's evidence that we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The fact they're actually given a new heart and a new spirit. The outworking of God's promise in the new covenant, which is in fact a fulfilling of his promise to Abram here, his everlasting covenant. As we've said, we too, like Abraham, through faith, are recipients of God's promise. And we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We can be certain, because God has guaranteed it, until, we read in Ephesians 1, until we acquire possession of it. Hear that, until? Life of faith is a life of waiting, patiently. We may well die before we see the complete fulfilment of God's promise. In fact, unless Christ comes again, it's essential. I was going to read some passages to finish. I think you've got one there. But We too, like Abraham, we live, we wait and we die in faith as strangers and exiles on earth, waiting for and longing for, desiring a better country, a heavenly one the new heavens and the new earth. But a better country that we can know for certain is ours in Christ. Amen.